We have come to chapter 1, and we're at paragraph 6. Chapter 1 on Scripture, paragraph 6. And last time we covered about one-third of the issues of paragraph 6. And now we will finish the second and the third topics. The first topic or issue deals with footnote number 9. And today we will deal with footnotes numbers 10 and 11 with additional scriptures for each of those, 10 and 11. Paragraph 6. Let's read it and then explain it some, but then go to the uh, two footnotes, 10 and 11, to see what the scriptures say. First, it says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, that we covered last time, that the Bible is self-contained, and whatever is necessary for our salvation and the glory of God, the Bible contains those Topics. The Bible contains those truths. Whatever is necessary for the glory of God and for our salvation is in the Bible so that nothing outside the Bible, whether people say the Holy Spirit told me or people make their own traditions, men make their own traditions, it's wrong. If it contradicts God's holy word, it is wrong. Nobody should ever do that and say, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you something. That should not happen. If it contradicts the Bible, if it's not in the Bible, it is wrong. We saw that last time. The two scriptures they give here are 2 Timothy 3 and Galatians 1. And we added many more scriptures to those. Correct? We showed that and proved that last time. Now today, we will deal with two more matters, two more subjects which are found in the second paragraph of paragraph number six, or paragraph B of number six. And these two have to do with the work of the Holy Spirit and the use of the Word. Holy Spirit, use of the Word. But also, the third subject has to do with the light of nature. What nature teaches us? The light of nature. So firstly, according to uh, paragraph 6, the second part of that, where we have footnote number 10, we will deal with the use of the Word and the Spirit together, where they say, Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. The work of the Holy Spirit inside us is necessary to have a saving understanding of the Bible as revealed in the Word, in the Bible. Do we understand what they mean? If, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show us and convince us about what's in the Bible, then we are not saved. He has to save us the Holy Spirit has to save us by showing us what's in the Bible. 
many people can understand the, the Savior. Who is the Savior? If you ask an unbeliever who is the Savior in the Bible, they will say Jesus Christ. Well, they're correct because they can read it and know the Bible says Jesus Christ is the Savior. They can understand things like that, but they can't understand those things for their salvation unless the Holy Spirit changes the the heart and convinces them to have faith in the Word of Christ, in the Bible itself. Many people understand things in the Bible, but they don't understand the Bible for their salvation. That is the major problem. Okay, to show this truth, first we go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 44 to 45. John 6, 44 to 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. No one is able to come to Christ. No one is able to believe in Christ unless the Father draws him. Well, how does the Father draw him? By the Holy Spirit. The Father draws by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is drawing the person, then they are taught of God. They hear the voice of the Father. They learn from the Father when the Holy Spirit teaches a man. How do we know he means the Holy Spirit? John six sixty three. John six sixty three. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The words of Christ are necessary to hear, but who gives the life based on the words heard? The Holy Spirit. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. Let's now go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, 25 to 29. Romans 2, 25 to 29. And the Spirit is mentioned in the last verse in a short phrase. So pay attention as we read. 2.25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, 
but from God. How is it that an uncircumcised man can do better in the sight of God, please God, more than the Jew who is circumcised? The key difference is the spirit changes the heart of the man so that when the heart is changed by the Holy Spirit, then he fulfills the law the way God wants him to fulfill the law. Keep the law the way God wants him to keep the law. Second Corinthians, no, First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. 2, 1 to 16. First Corinthians 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man, which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Well, how do we have the mind of Christ? We have the mind of Christ because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God, not the wisdom of men, but the words of God. The Holy Spirit uses them, as he says in verse 4, demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, why did the rulers of the world who crucified Christ not believe in Christ? Because they were not predestined to believe. If they were predestined to believe, verse 7, then 
verse 8, uh, no, verse 10, verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Spirit of God is the one who teaches the Word of God to us for our salvation. The Holy Spirit teaches us for our salvation. In verse 13, he says, taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The Holy Spirit teaches us. He does not teach the unbelieving or reprobate man, the wicked, unrepentant sinner. They are called natural man in verse 14. He does not teach them. He teaches the elect, not the natural man. Now, 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. 17 to 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who produces liberty, Christian liberty. Now this liberty or Christian liberty is freedom or liberty from the wrath of God, the punishment of God, enslavement to the world, the flesh and the devil and death. This liberty God has granted us by his Holy Spirit so that once we experience it upon conversion, we continue in it from glory to glory, from lesser glory to greater glory, from little glory to great glory. That's the way the Spirit works to transform us so that we might grow in godliness. Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 1. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. And by the way, for the children, we're going in the order of the books of the Bible, so look a few pages ahead for Galatians. Galatians 3, verse 1. 1 to 5. Galatians 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The foolish and bewitched Galatians, they presumably started by the Spirit. They were converted by the Spirit, but now they have given up on the Holy Spirit and faith 
and are seeking to please God by works, works of the law. And he, the apostle, rebukes them, calling them foolish and bewitched. That means tricked like a witch tricks the person paying the witch to say something to help the individual coming to the witch. So the Galatians have been bewitched and fooled by the flesh and the devil and the world by thinking that they can please God by the works of the law. When they were taught, they can only please God by the work of the Holy Spirit in them, both to save them and sanctify them. That's why he says, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, that's not the way it works. We are in the Spirit, we start in the Spirit, and we finish in the Spirit. That's the way of the Christian life. Next, we go to Titus 3. Titus Timothy, and then Titus. Titus chapter 3, 1 to 7. Titus 3, 1 to 7. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verses 1 to 3, the apostle describes us before we knew Christ as Lord and Savior. Verses 1 to 3, the way we were before. We did not like to obey authorities and all the other sins, verses 2 and 3. That's the way we used to live. But what changed us? Why are we now the way we are? The kindness of God and His love. He saved us not because of righteous deeds, not because of good works, but by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had to wash us, and the Spirit had to renew us. And when the Spirit washed and renew us, renewed us, that's why we were justified by grace and received eternal life in Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit doesn't use the word that we hear, there's no eternal life. He has to wash us and renew us. And then 1 Peter Chapter 1, 1 Peter, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 
1 Peter 1, 1 to 5. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 1, we are chosen. Chosen by God the Father, by also, according to God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. And when He does work in us in that kind of sanctification, what do we do? It says in verse 2, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. When the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, we obey Jesus Christ and we are sprinkled by his blood. Verse 3, God the Father caused us to be born again. How did he cause us to be born again? He foreknew us, he chose us, and then he sent the Spirit to sanctify us and cause us to be born again. Verse 3. Remember what we read in John 6, John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. We also could read John 3, verses 6 and 8. John 3, 6, 5, 6, and 8, which says, Unless one is born of the Spirit and water, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3, 5 and 6 and verse 8. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us, sent by the Father, causes us to be born again to a living hope. So he saves us. And he ensures that we are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation, our eternal salvation yet to be fully experienced. The Spirit does that work in us. Okay, that is the work of the Spirit by using the Word. He works in those whom he saves. Also, back to the confession. We continue reading after footnote number 10 in the middle of the paragraph. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be 
observed. Let's explain this some more. There are some circumstances in the worship of God, in the government of the church, that are common to human actions and societies. Some things we do in the worship of God, some things we do in our church environment that are common to human actions and societies. Whatever others are doing, we do similar things. They don't specify what they are, but we will see a few. But let's use uh, some obvious examples. Does the Bible ever say, when you worship God, make sure you wear a belt? The Bible doesn't say that. However, if you're going to be decent when you come to worship God with the people of God and your pants are loose, you should wear a belt. Correct? That's obvious in terms of what people do and what we must do here to be decent, to be modest. Wear a belt so that your pants don't fall. Wear a belt so that your shirt doesn't come untucked easily. Whatever, wear a belt so that you're decent when you are worshiping God publicly. So that's the kind of thing that people do and we need to do to yeah, when we gather and govern ourselves. Okay, then... But there's more examples, and we'll see some scriptural examples. Then another thing is, they say here, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed, we may use the light of nature. However, we cannot say, well, the light of nature, according to me, is this way, when it contradicts the Bible or contradicts a principle of the Bible, a precept of the Bible, a value of the Bible. We can't do that. Now, examples of what we mean. The first one, let, let's first read these in 1 Corinthians right here on the page. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 11, 13, and 14. 1 Corinthians 11, 13, and 14. 11, 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Also 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. He says, judge for yourselves. Figure this out yourselves. You should know this. You should discern this. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? He uses an argument in verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. Doesn't nature teach, isn't it obvious in human actions and societies that women ought to have long hair and men short hair? When women have short hair and men have long hair, we look at the individual and we say something's wrong. It doesn't look right. That's not the way it should be. And we know that. 
I know many people suppress that. Many people deny that, but that's because their heart is stubborn. But if they were thinking correctly, rightly, they were being honest about it and using common sense, they would say, of course, women should have long hair. It beautifies them. They look beautiful that way. And of course, men should have short hair because they look like a man that way. They, don't, they shouldn't look like a woman with long hair. A man should look like a man and a woman should look like a woman. That's the light of nature. And that's what he says here, verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you? The way things work, doesn't nature itself teach you? 1 Corinthians 14, 14, 26. 14, 26. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Let all things be done for edification. What does he mean, let all things be done for edification? Look at verse 40. Verse 40. But let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Suppose we gathered, and he mentions here one, two, three, four, five things here. Five things that people could say or do. A psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let's suppose that the five individuals, five different individuals, start talking at the same time to everybody. One's got a psalm, another's got a teaching, another's got a revelation, another's got a tongue, and then somebody's interpreting the tongue. But all five are talking at the same time. Is that going to edify? Is that going to help anybody? No, it just throws confusion. Wait, we have to listen to one person at a time, correct? That's why he says in verse 40, let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. If it's done properly and orderly, then we can understand, we can be edified, we can grow. But if there is disorder, we can't grow. There's only confusion, there's only chaos. So it should be done this way. Don't the people of the world also know this? If you go to the bank, can anybody just walk up to the teller? Anybody just rush and walk up to the teller without standing in line? I know sometimes people do that, but aren't they supposed to be orderly and stand in line and go to the teller one by one, one customer at a time to the bank teller? Correct? Or even behind, behind the, the glass? Um, or plastic, whatever. When they are standing or standing there waiting to help us, can three or four tellers help the one customer at the same time at the one machine? Are they supposed to reach over each other and push different buttons? Is it supposed to be like that? No. They know that it's supposed to be orderly, organized, without chaos. There should be no chaos on the customer side and no chaos on the bank side. They know that. 
How about in government? How about in government? Whenever a representative is speaking, are all the other representatives supposed to speak at the same time? Or those in the audience, whether representatives or citizens or staff, whoever they are, are they supposed to keep quiet and listen? Who has the microphone? Do two or three or four or ten representatives speak at the same time to an audience of a hundred people? No. They speak in turn. They're given a time allotment so that people can speak in turn. And somebody organizes that. The chairman or whoever is organizing who is speaking when and for how long so that it can be done orderly. So if orderliness in the government is good and orderliness in the bank is good, shouldn't there be orderliness in the church? No confusion? No chaos? That's what he's saying here. Or that's what the scriptures are saying here. Okay, now, further on the light of nature. More examples on the light of nature. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now we go back a few pages. Romans chapter 1, 26 to 27. Romans chapter 1, 26 to 27. The light of nature. God has given us the ability to know the obvious. 126. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person persons the due penalty of their error. Here, degrading passions is going contrary to nature. He says in verses 26 and 27, their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. He says natural and unnatural. He means that men should marry women. That's what he's saying. Men do not marry men. Women do not marry women. Men don't marry animals. Women do not marry animals. It doesn't work like that. Men should marry women. And when they come together as husband and wife, that is natural. In what, when they come together in um, sexual intercourse or marital union, when they come together, that is natural. But what's unnatural? It's unnatural for a man to do things sexually with another man and a woman with another woman. That's unnatural. It's obvious. May I use another example? This one is not in the Bible, but isn't it obvious that if we're eating steak tonight, that when I cut the steak, I don't cut a piece of the steak and stick it in my ear to eat it? I don't stick it up my nose to eat it? I don't stick it in my eye to eat it, in my eye socket to eat it, right? We put the piece of steak in the mouth to eat it, correct? There are 
things that are self-evident, that are natural, that if we use common sense, we know what to do. We know that. We know what to do. That's what the light of nature is. There are some things that way. Many things that way. Okay, further examples. Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. Matthew 12, 1 to 14. Matthew 12, 1 to 14. We find in this passage the Pharisees pick a fight with Christ and they lose. They always lose. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In order that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. The disciples are hungry like David and his men were hungry when they were fleeing King Saul. King Saul was looking to assassinate David, and David had to run for his life. Well, running for his life, he not only did not have a sword on him, typically they would, but he had to run and he didn't have a sword on him, and he didn't have any food on him. They ran out of food or didn't have any food because they had to flee immediately, he and his men. So David, being that desperate in hunger, just like the disciples were here, what's more important? Feeding a very hungry man or having the priests who have plenty of food, in this case, plenty of food, they had some consecrated bread, they didn't have regular bread, so the priest gave David and his men some of the consecrated bread, the holy bread, because there was no other food around. They knew David didn't sin, If we read about this incident in 1 Samuel 21, the text of 1 Samuel 21 does not accuse David of sin. 
or of the high priest of sin, does not accuse them of sin at all. It was the right thing to do. Jesus' enemies know that. If you have somebody who is desperate for food, he needs the food, give him the food. Give him the food. And don't say, well, it's the Sabbath day, I can't do anything. That's not how it works. The same with a sheep. The Pharisees knew that if a sheep fell into a pit, fell into a hole on the Sabbath day, the owner, the shepherd, could easily, without breaking any laws, sabbatical laws, could remove the sheep from the pit, do what's necessary, get help, find help, uh, get some rope, do whatever is necessary to get that sheep out of the pit. Now, if that was obviously known, and there is no law in the law of Moses that says, keep the Sabbath day holy, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and then here are the exceptions. If a sheep falls into a pit, then you can work to get your sheep out of the pit. But only one sheep, not two or not ten sheep, only one sheep. There are no laws like that. Why are there no laws like that in the law of Moses? Because it's self-evident. It's the law of nature. It's common sense. You don't let that animal suffer and die like that on the Sabbath day. Remove it from the pit. Help it. So if we can help an animal that way, Jesus goes from the lesser to the greater. If we can help an animal that way on the Sabbath day, why can't he help a man on the Sabbath day? Because men are more valuable than animals. They already knew by the light of nature to help animals. And Christ is saying, you know that men are in the image of God. Animals are not. So I helped a man on the Sabbath. And you have no grounds of accusation. Luke, Luke 13. Luke 13. We find two more examples of the same in Luke. Luke 13, 10 to 17. Luke 13, 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made erect again, and began glorifying God. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, There are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall? and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. The woman was in this sickness for 18 long years. What's wrong with healing her on the Sabbath day? If they go to water 
their animals on the Sabbath day, why can't the woman be healed on the Sabbath day? Is there a law in the law of Moses that says you are permitted to water your animals on the Sabbath day? No. There is no law that says anything like that. You are permitted or not permitted. There is no law. Why? Because it's common sense. Though the animals need to drink. They drink all day long. They need to drink and it was so obvious that God didn't give them a specific commandment to explain it. The light of nature. Chapter 14, Luke 14, 1 to 6. Luke 14, 1 to 6. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. If one's son or ox falls into a well, do they need a law? Do they need any clarification from Moses or any other prophet to say, he fell into a well, the animal fell into a well, help the animal get out of the well immediately. They don't need a law to tell them because the light of nature, common sense, tells them what to do. And there's nothing contrary to Scripture. Nothing contrary to Scripture here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.